0: Hello and welcome to the future of higher education. It's my pleasure to be here today with Michael Crow, the president of Arizona State University, and author with William DeBars of two uh, very influential books on higher education: Designing the New American University and The Fifth Wave: The Evolution of American Higher Education. Michael, thanks so much for being with us. Happy to be here, David. Um, could you start out by telling us a little about your, your childhood and early education?
1: Um, well, I, I grew up as a, uh, what's called a Navy brat. And so, uh, what that meant was that my, my parents who were Midwestern teenagers, uh, ran away, got married. I was their first child, uh, born in San Diego at the Balboa Naval Hospital. And then, uh, all of my other four siblings, all five of us were born at Naval hospitals. We moved and moved and moved and moved. I went to, uh, Seventeen schools that we kept track of before I graduated from high school, and and actually more because some we didn't even register at. We just went there for a few days, and, my, and then it didn't work out, so we had moved somewhere else. And so, so lots of moving around uh, in different parts of the country, and uh, uh, you know, grew up uh, in a navy family.
0: Great, and and I noticed that you majored in environmental studies along with. Um, political science when you were at Iowa State. Um, at right. that time, that was probably not a, a a a very popular choice in the way it is today. Can you say what was it that prompted your interest in that field?
1: Well, you know, what was interesting to me was um, I'd been a, a Boy Scout all those years moving around, and I'd worked as a Boy Scout counselor, and I, I made Eagle Scout, and I took all of the uh, what were then the conservation merit badges. Uh, There was a merit badge for for nature, there was a merit badge for geology, bird study, uh, astronomy, geology, I took all of those because they just were just a cool way to learn about stuff. And so I became really interested in how the earth works and how its systems work. So then when I showed up at college, I told the lady at the little table, you used to go up walk up to the table and she'd say, what's your major? And I said, well, I'd like to major in these five things. She says, no, what's your major, singular? So I ended up majoring in two things uh, and minoring in three. So I told her five subjects and I had to end up doing two majors and, and three minors. But what I was really intently interested in was uh, was about how the earth worked and uh, sort of as a source of life. It was just really interesting to me. So,
0: and, and for a Navy brat, Iowa State seems about as far from any coast as you could get. <laughs> how, how did you end up there?
1: Uh, That's a long story. I mean, uh, I threw the javelin there. So partly athletics. Uh, uh, I had a then high school girlfriend, which was, in fact, uh, not much of a girlfriend. She was my friend who was also a girl. Uh, And uh, she was going to go there. So I thought, well, maybe that's pretty good. So I got into a lot of different schools. But, you know, I thought maybe she would go there. I was going to throw the javelin there. So it's really complicated. (laughs)
0: Okay. and and. After you had graduated there, I I know you did some work both in in the government and academics. What was it that first made you decide to become uh, an an academic?
1: You know, I really became enamored with uh, where do all these ideas come from that help us design what the United States was going to be, that help us think about how we might live in a more environmentally uh, uh, enhanced uh, way. And then I realized that there was a source of these ideas, and it wasn't the only source, but it was a principal source, and this was universities. And so I became enamored with the fact that universities produced ideas, and that all those ideas had changed over long periods of time, meaning the same ideas were not just being mulled over, over and over and over, new ideas were being produced. And so I became just really, really hugely fascinated with wanting to be associated with the place that produced ideas.
0: And at what stage in your career did you first occur to you that you might want to be a university president?
1: You know, I never really thought about being a university president. What I thought about, I slowly morphed myself into what I call now a a knowledge enterprise architect. And what that really meant was that I was really interested in architecting new ways to solve problems, new ways to bring together disciplines, new ways to, you know, to 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 create knowledge and to create solutions and create understanding at the basic level. And so then along the way, the design challenges just seem to be more and more interesting at broader and broader scope. So then eventually somebody said, well, you know, would you like to be a designer of a university? I'm like, yeah, that'd be fun. So, so, so then I've been in, I've only been in two jobs for the last 30 years. So I, I was the essentially the deputy provost at Columbia uh, for for eleven years, and I've been here in this job for nineteen years. So I've been I've been in this job of designing for thirty years, and I was learning to be a designer before that. So tells your listeners how old I am, also. Old.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and you you mentioned Columbia in, in in your intro in the preface to designing the new American University. You noted that at the time, uh, Arizona State couldn't have been much more different than Columbia in terms of its, its profile. It was only elite,
1: elite. elite Ivy league school and world's largest party university. And,
0: so, right. and so, so, and so, so, so
1: what was the appeal? The appeal from my perspective, you know, I was at Columbia and I was having a lot of fun there and I had a really great role there and I was really excited. I had helped design, or I was the principal designer of the earth Institute there at Columbia. I was, Involved in building new research centers, I was on the faculty. I was teaching. I was working on projects, working on all kinds of new things, cool things. Uh, uh, but I realized that for all that Columbia had achieved, that it couldn't scale. And then I looked out into the broader public university sector and saw that it was not evolving quickly enough, not scaling, not figuring things out. And so I decided that uh, uh, you know I really wanted to be a part of helping to design a new kind of a new kind of public university. And ASU was big enough, new enough, unformed enough, uh, committed enough, culturally capable, and culturally agile enough to uh, be a place that I thought that uh, if we could get the faculty excited, we could build a new kind of university. So that was really the logic for coming over here, and it's proven to be it's it's proven to be the case.
0: And and in your assessment of that, the the culturally agile uh, enough and that piece of it, because I think before that, as you say, it had a reputation as a party school. It wasn't right. known as a, as a top research university. So what was it in the interviewing process or the the research you did that led you to believe that it could be receptive to the kind of, of really transformative ideas that you had in mind?
1: Well, one, one was the fact that the faculty here was really good and they had not yet been empowered, uh, at, at the level that they might be. Second was the open-mindedness to new ideas, uh, uh, within arizona itself third was a willingness to build an entrepreneurial university as opposed as opposed to a bureaucratic university so if you took openness to cultural change on the part of the faculty which there was <clears throat> and if you took high quality faculty which there was and if you took and gave them a new model because the old model clearly wasn't working for them which was maybe the state will fund you maybe the state will fund you maybe the state will fund you and you'd be and you built a more entrepreneurial university so the the board that hired me was really interested in an entrepreneurial president who could figure out how to advance the university as a public-private hybrid serving a public purpose. And we definitively have done that. And so there was openness to that. And then basically, I assumed that if there was openness to that, then there would also be openness to intellectual uh, redesign and intellectual creativity, which there was. And it turns out that those two things may even go somewhat hand in hand. And so it was a, a fabulous design opportunity to come to a place that was uh, socially and culturally open to a new model for a university.
0: That's great. And so, so when you were going there, it sounds like you already had some of the seeds of the new American university model. How, how fully formed was it in your mind? And were there other institutions that you looked at in thinking about what, what was needed or what was possible that, that helped to shape your thinking?
1: Well, there was a number of philosophers that I'd been reading and studying. First, I'm, I'm a, an avid student of American history, and I know that the founders <clears throat> several times, including Washington, <clears throat> talked over and over and over about the need for a national university, the need to serve the nation, serve the nation, and that never happened. And then I know the Smithsonian, uh, John Smithson, left his money, and they debated and debated about whether or not it should be a museum or a university, and they decided on museum and scientific institution, not a university. Then the land-grant universities come along in the middle of the civil war and so i could see through history that there was all this desire to create a new kind of egalitarian university a kind of egalitarian scientific institution uh, sort of what uh, don stokes talked about in pastures quadrant you know the pastures world you know where you're doing basic science but you're also trying to solve some kind of problem well in all of that what i could see was that um none of the university models that people really wished could have been built were, were coming out and they, they just they just weren't happening. And so, so what I could see was that there was a huge opportunity to construct a new kind of institution, a new kind of uh, institution that would be uh, there. In fact, in the 70s or the 80s, there was this thing about, or maybe in the 60s, could you build land grants for the cities? And it was talked about and talked about and talked about, and then nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. And then they would build universities, uh, public universities in the cities, and then they would tell them, well, you can't do research, you just need to teach. You need to leave the research up to the research universities. And so there was this bifurcation or the separation. So the the design challenge from my perspective was, could you build a truly American university, truly egalitarian in every possible way that was as research intensive or as scholarly focused uh, as any institution that had ever been built? And the answer was, it had been done before but not with scale or diversity. Therefore, could it be done now? And the answer was most certainly yes, if you took a different design approach.
0: And interesting in reading your work, it sounded like the the two models that are in many ways closest to ASU in terms of scale, being urban, having the impact were, were not U.S. universities. So you mentioned Toronto and the University of London, I was wondering, are, are those ones that, that shaped your thinking on what was possible? And given your study of U.S. history, given that the U.S. is, you know, and, and you would agree, I think, widely acknowledged to have the premier higher ed system, why was it that other countries sort of came closest to this ideal and not the U.S.?
1: Well, first, let me back up a little bit. I should I should have mentioned that there were there were several philosophers also that had not just the founding philosophers and the founding logic of our republic, but but there were, uh, you know, John Dewey and his notion of education and Richard Rorty and his notion of American pragmatism and pragmatic philosophy. If you look at uh, Jose Ortega, a Spanish philosopher, early 20th century, you know, his ideas of what the university should really be. And then a book came along by Frank Rhodes called Creating the Future, in which Frank, who was the president of Cornell at the time, basically said, well, here's what universities should do. Here's what they do do. And then he offered an apology for why they couldn't do it. And then a guy named Jim Duderstadt, who was the president of the University of Michigan, wrote another apology book called The University in the 21st Century. And so all these things are spinning around in my head. Uh, And then you look back in time and then you see the emergence of the University of London in the 1820s and 30s and 40s in the early 19th century as a contrary design to Oxford and Cambridge and its colleges to be more egalitarian in the British model which is much less even in concept than the American model of egalitarianism. And so you could see all these people that were writing and thinking and designing, but no American university had really emerged quite in this in this way. And so it was kind of weird bringing in the University of Toronto. So in the US, you know, one of the one of the we get criticized for all kinds of things and I get criticized every day of the week out there and so one one of the criticisms is well, you can't be any good if you're big. The well, University of Toronto is ninety thousand students, uh, and it's the biggest university in Canada, and it's the best university in Canada. And so here, there, and it's very egalitarian, also. So, so I looked a lot at the University of London model, University of Toronto model, size, scale. University of London means all the schools, you know, what was Kings and UCL and uh, Royal Holloway and uh, even Imperial, which left, but but uh, uh, you know, all, London yeah. Business School, London School of Economics. You know, you look at all those things and you could see what they were trying to do. And nothing like that has ever been pursued quite that way in the U.S. And so those were drivers for me because we we're after scale and egalitarian access.
0: So so, tell us a little bit about when you when you get out to Arizona, how did you go about sort of that initial strategic plan? getting people to buy into this broad vision of what was was possible? And and how did you approach that in terms of your leadership team? Did you create a new leadership team to do this? Did you work with the folks who were already there?
1: Well, you always work with the folks that are already here because they're already here. And so, uh, you know, uh, so the basic approach that I took was uh, basically uh, I decided to make a proposal. So my inaugural speech in the fall of 02, I came in July of 02, but my inaugural speech in the fall of 02 was basically a proposal. Could we build a new American university as a new kind of gold standard? And I basically said, we have lots of gold standards for universities that don't scale and universities that don't have significant access and so forth. And that's fine. Those are gold standards for what later became what I call the waves in in the four waves leading up to the fifth wave. And there's lots of tremendous institutions in the US and so forth and so on. But I basically said, could we create a new gold standard? And the gold standard would be a university measuring itself against its social impact, a university measuring itself against uh, transformative uh, outcomes. And so I made this proposal. And I would say, you know, 50% of the people, maybe there are like 3,000 people in the audience, and then maybe, you know, 10 or 20,000 other people paying some kind of attention. Uh, And maybe half of them said, yeah, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if that can be done. And maybe a quarter of them said, uh, "We got to get rid of this guy. We got to kill him <laughs> off as soon as possible because he's just going to cause all kinds of trouble." And another quarter said, "And I might be, I might be understating this. They I do not 'I don't, I don't really care about any of this.' And so, <laughs> so, meaning, meaning it's not even relevant. So, so I got enough people interested that we got some design processes underway. And then eventually, after a few years, I was able to convince people that you know I was an architect, not a commander. You know that that it wasn't central authority; it was empowerment from the center about new kinds of designs. And so once we got that rolling, we were able to move into a design mode. Uh, and it's really been pretty much a design project. Uh, think of it again as, as a knowledge enterprise ar- architecture, as the designing of new ways to produce knowledge, new ways to organize knowledge, new ways to do teaching and learning. And so, and that, that has proven to be fantastically successful in the sense that it's a non-bureaucratically dominated model. So um, I went to this graduate school called the Maxwell School for Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. And one of the areas I took my exams in for my doctoral training was in organizational theory. And in organizational theory was this whole sub area that they had a study on organizational ecology and the social ecology of organizations. And so you learn in there that if you really want to change things, you have to change routines. You have to change purposes, but you also learn that uh, universities had become unbelievably supremely bureaucratic unless you could break the bureaucratic model. So my principal objective was to change culture, break the bureaucratic model, empower the faculty as intellectual architects, move the university away from a government bureaucracy model, sort of like running like the French post office, uh, and, and and move into more of an entrepreneurial model and make all those things happen. And that was basically my proposal. So I made a philosophical and an, uh, and a cultural proposal. And I wasn't killed off in the first year. I, I lived through the second year, started to make some progress in the third year, and now we're in year 19 and still not dead.
0: Yeah, and and you know what you've done in achieving that gold standard, I think, is something that every president in the country um, would aspire to. So you've moved pretty much all of the key metrics simultaneously, serving far more uh, low-income students, students of color, r- raising your graduation and retention rates, hugely expanding research, hugely expanding the number of startup companies, all doing this at a time when Arizona was leading the country in cutting public support for higher ed. So what, what, within your design process, what were the key elements that enabled you to achieve all of those things simultaneously with significantly less public support per student?
1: Well, I think the main thing in the design process was one, to have a design objective. And so we call that our charter. So we evolved something other than a generic charter. And our charter focuses on inclusion versus exclusion and measured student success. It focuses on research being measured for public benefit, and it focuses on taking responsibility for our communities. And since all our universities are located in different communities, that means then that those those outcomes will be different also. And so the design driver then was this charter this aspirational charter then we had what we called were design aspirations and that meant certain features that we would build into asu so one was that where we were really made a difference and so place and so that would mean uh, highly uh polycultural which we have become highly focused on sustainability because of where we live which we have uh we we picked one which was uh, uh intellectual fusion that meant, why did we want to be the same as Michigan State or Ohio State or Purdue or other big, big public uh, research universities? Because they already had all the stuff that they were doing. Why would we want to do the same thing? And so it's almost, I don't even know what to call it. It's almost like lazy. You, you hire these university presidents, you pay them a boatload of money, uh, and then they come in, they set up the same thing. It's like, well, who needs that? What we need is we need more types of universities, more varieties of universities. So the second dimension, so the first dimension was was design aspirations. The second inspiration was design goals. Uh, The third uh, element of the change that we put in place was to set very, very challenging specific goals to attain. So we basically said that the university wouldn't be successful unless the student body was as socioeconomically diverse as the population. That's extremely difficult to pull off. And we we have, our our team has been able to pull that off. So, So then after that, then we began focusing on culture. And the main element of the culture that needed to be altered was the culture of the faculty. And so, what we needed was a faculty that were em, em, emboldened, empowered, unconstrained, could be intellectually creative. And so, we facilitated uh, eighty academic units uh, going away, and thirty-five new academic units being designed. We we built new schools, new designs, new programs, new initiatives, new degree programs. We said, "You can have as many degree programs as you as you want. They, they just won't be there if no one wants them." <laughs> and so, you let the market. You let the you let to some extent the market. Uh, uh, prevail. So, so, not to make the answer too long. So we, you know, we focused on aspirations, specific designs, specific goals, culture change, and then two other critical things, which then allowed us to do all these things at the same time. One was we had to pick up our clock speed. So academic clock speed is, you know, it's it's sort of like Da Vinci. You know, when he would decide to change his venue from Florence to. Rome, or from uh, Florence to Milan, you know that might be a six-month transition process. Everything was slow, seasonal. Academics is still on Da Vinci time, Uh, and and uh, we need some academic institutions to be on real-world time. Things are changing really, really rapidly. And then the last element of the driver of our simultaneity of being able to drive so many changes at once was to embrace technology, uh, to embed technology into all aspects of the institution, which is what I think we've been able to do. And I mean, every technological tool you can possibly imagine that's helped us to affect retention and graduation and diversification and success and our faculty now. So we're, we're, we're producing four times as many graduates doing five times the level of funded research. We have 25 times the number of learners engaged with the institution and our faculty is about the same size.
0: So that that was the the next question I had for you is is obviously you've leveraged technology heavily, but how have you been able to expand that level of output of both teaching, research, as well as as you know impact in terms of startups and other things without expanding the the full time faculty, which is one of the things that obviously a lot of people see as being about a, a mark of a, of a truly world class research university, which ASU has become.
1: You know, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. You know, it's, it's uh, we did uh, 200 technology deals with educational technology companies. We uh, trained thousands of faculty members to work in new ways. We built all kinds of tools and devices and systems. And we also hired uh, lots and lots of project managers to work with our faculty to let them focus on teaching and discovery and research and let other people help them do proposals. We built proposal machines giving faculty, you know, we, in a sense, our, our goal was to empower the faculty so the students could be more successful. So everything that we could do to empower the faculty, freeing the faculty from these inane arguments that so many units were in arguing with each other over decades, you know, internecine academic warfare. I remember Jane Smiley's old book, Moo. Uh, you know, it was just, it was just that kind of internecine warfare is just, just Moo you, uh, was, was, was just unbelievably bad. We, we have some of that but maybe we have 10 units of that and maybe most universities have a hundred units of that. Well, that gives us 90 units of energy to spend on other things. And so it turns out, lo and behold, that, that works. We changed the semester. So we have two seven and a half week modules in each of three semesters. You can teach your course for 15 weeks. You could teach your course for seven and a half week, weeks. You could teach your course uh, uh, technology enhanced. You can teach your course uh, old style. Uh, soon we're going to have technology enhanced, old style, and sync. We're going to have three teaching modalities. Uh, You can meet your teaching requirement uh, by teaching your online classes for our online students. And then the next year you're teaching, or the next semester you're teaching on campus students, allowing you to be away for that entire semester, giving you more chance to do things. So we, we've, we've greatly enhanced our faculty's flexibility and agility. Also, we've really been able to do that.
0: And obviously, you know, you've, written about, and it's clear from the results, that there's a huge benefit to scale in this, in being able to improve both quality and outcomes with this. As as universities like ASU, Southern New Hampshire, Western governors are, are investing heavily in the technology of learning, do you see this, is it going to accelerate the consolidation within higher ed of institutions either failing or merging because they can't match that in terms of the production values and the scale that comes with that?
1: You know, I, I don't I don't think so, David. I think that what's going to happen is that um, learning is going to have to accelerate across the entire society. Uh, people are going to be going through four and five career changes in their lifetimes. I mean, in the next generation, you know, all routine tasks will be highly automated, uh, There may not be any, there may be a third of the number of truck drivers that there used to be and and so forth. And so this huge social change coming our way, huge competitive threats coming our way. That is, you know, challenges, I should say, you know, competitive opportunities for our country. And so, you know, people say we have too many institutions. No, we have too many institutions doing the same thing. You know, we have too many institutions playing in the exact same niche, uh, doing exactly the same thing. So, so in a sense we have, you can't see me, but, but uh, on, on the, on the audio, but You know, we have a mile wide opportunity and we have a hundred foot wide set of institutions. And so the demand for what we could do far exceeds what we are doing now to the to the the three mega universities that you talked about, each of which are very different. So the Gates Foundation calls these the megas, the Southern New Hampshire's, the Western governors and the ASU's. So of those three, we're the ones doing research with a core faculty and a large library and so forth and so on. So that's model one. The other two are going to be much more scalable than even we are because they're using a different faculty model and a different purveyance model. And so what I think will happen is that there might be 10 or so universities like ASU that evolve. Could be, you know, if you think about it in certain ways, uh, Penn State, uh, if you think about the University of Maryland system, a few others, things like that. And then I see Western governors and Southern New Hampshire evolving as as, um, non-scholarly intensive, non-research intensive institutions. Uh, But even with that, let's say you had 10 ASUs out there, Western governors in Southern New Hampshire, that doesn't even become close to meet the demand. The demand will be so significant that that, uh, anyone that adjusts their uh, design will have more than enough students and more than enough learners to uh, feed their particular niche with resources.
0: Well, it's great to hear that in encouraging analysis of, of where we're heading. Even with the, the tools you have uh, instituted for for providing advising, predictive analytics, the, the goal you've set of getting to 90% first to second year retention, right. that's something that typically before this, only the 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 Ivy's, the most elite liberal arts colleges managed, and you're trying to do it with, you know, a, a much, much, much larger percentage of first generation, yeah. um, lower income students. What is it that enables you to take, uh, you know, a much more diverse talent pool to start and, and, and get toward that really ambitious goal?
1: Well, we will hit that above 90%. We're, we're crashing in on it right now. And that's with, uh, over 40,000 Pell eligible undergraduates uh, and uh, 30,000 first generation undergraduates and with a student body that is as a representative socioeconomically as the broader population. The principal reason that we're gonna get there is that we want to get there. We, we know that that we had not created an environment where students could be retained. That is we hadn't designed ourselves and our pedagogy and our support in a way where a really smart kid from a lower income, uh, first generation uh, family could, even though they did very well in their local high school, could make it through the university. And it used to be, oh, well, too bad. Well, we don't take, oh, well, too bad anymore. We, you know, we, we basically say that we have to figure this out. In fact, we even set a, 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 a broader objective for ourselves, which we haven't attained yet, which is that undifferentiated outcomes based on family income. And so we're almost there, but that means that your family income cannot predict your graduation. Now, you already stated it. So other schools like Michigan or Berkeley or Harvard or Columbia, they only admit students with A-plus grade points from high school. And so it turns out, lo and behold, most of those students do okay. And so, and so, but then, so some will say to us, and this is kind of cruel, they'll say, well, then you're admitting students that shouldn't be in college. And I'm like, no, you don't understand that. I mean, college is not necessarily meant for everyone, meant for everyone but uh, nor is it the way that everybody learns or even wants to learn. So I got all that. But, but college should be taking up, you know, uh, the upper third to the upper half of, uh, of the general population for now and possibly even later, even more. Uh, and that means then that we have to figure out how to be uh, helpful across a very broad spectrum of students. So, for instance, we have students at ASU from more than 200 Native American tribes here with us. And uh, cynics will say, we have lots of Native American tribes in Arizona. I say, yeah, 23. I said, we have another 180 to 200 tribes, you know, uh, students from tribes coming in. And so, and so then somebody will say, well, why do you have them? And I'll say, well, because we want them. (laughs) uh, And so, and so, but then, but then it becomes then, uh, uh, across all of the spectrum of students that we're bringing in, you know, uh, wealthy students of all ethnicities, uh, lower income students of all ethnicities, you know, all the people that we're bringing in here, we then have to create an environment in which they can all advance. And that's what we have really figured out how to do.
0: I, I, th- I assume that one core component of enabling such a high pers- number 40,000 Pell eligible students to, to be so successful academically was your Obama Scholars Program to, to be able to offer the assurance that, that to, to low income families in Arizona that they could graduate debt free. With the, with the huge reductions in the state support for students in Arizona, how were you able to fund such an ambitious effort?
1: Well, this is the other thing that our faculty actually became excited about. So when we decided to do Go Big Online, we now have 80,000 online degree-seeking students. It turns out that the cost margin there is the margins are significant for reinvestment. Reinvestment back in the academic units, as well as reinvestment into financial aid. So, we were able to put into we were able to put into place uh, financial aid structures financed by ourselves and by our philanthropy. We've also just raised two point three billion dollars, uh, and we've got tens and tens of thousands of students on private philanthropy. So, we built an institution where even the faculty realized if I can do these online classes, I can generate more money, which will pay for more kids to go to college. Well, once you start thinking that way. Man, you're way past philanthropy at that point. You're into the whole enterprise being so excited to help students to be able to pay to go to college. So we've graduated thousands of Obama scholars, thousands. Uh, and I think the uh, median family income, uh, in fact, I know the median family income of these Obama scholars is under $20,000. Uh, so, and so this is, a, this is a way under $20,000. And so this, our faculty get excited about that, as they should. And they want to work harder because they know that their work is not only educating the students, but helping to pay for the students to go to, uh, to, go to university.
0: Another core element of the new American university model, as you articulated, was, was to sh- shift the emphasis of research to both transdisciplinary and also research that was, was going to have a, a positive real-world impact. How do you go about incentivizing faculty to focus their work in those areas? Did you change the tenure criteria or the evaluation or what, what kinds of, 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 you know, incentives or direction were you able to give toward that?
1: Well, I think one of the things that we that we tried to do is we tried to say, the world has all these issues and all these problems. Um, you know. We can do a better job of producing fundamental knowledge, applied knowledge, solutions, uh, outcome oriented science, if we just find a way to be to fuse our intellectual disciplines together in new ways. And so we started you know a school of sustainability, a school of complexity, a school for the future of innovation and in society, a school for human evolution and social change. We started all these new schools, uh, dozens of them, dozens and dozens and dozens of them. Uh, and and then we said to people in these schools, well obviously your promotion and tenure criteria will be established based on the purpose of the school. So if the purpose of the school is transdisciplinary interaction, well if that's really what we're looking for, we're not looking for you as a superhero, singular person who was the discoverer of the, you know, the muon of the muon of the muon, you know, you know, we're really interested in what were the interdisciplinary teams that you helped to facilitate? What do they think about your contribution? What was it that you were able to bring to the table? And so we tried and i think we were largely successful at customizing the promotion and tenure process dependent on you know what is that person trying to do what is that scholar trying to do and so we did change incentives uh, we ch- we changed culture we changed openness you know many many more joint appointments many many more project teams many many more resources uh, internal funding resources new facilities we built uh, interdisciplinary science and technology buildings one two, three, four, renovated number five, we're building number seven. Uh, we have a bunch of other buildings you know, we've probably built, I think we've built 14 new research buildings uh, and, and none of them are for a department or a school. They're all for doing, doing cool stuff with faculty members from all kinds of backgrounds. So we also created then a, a broader culture. We also have, this is important to note, this isn't related to tenure per se, but it's related to the model. You know, all the space in the institution is free. You know, we don't have any chargeback system. We don't have any methods. You know, we don't, we don't have any chargeback system for our online stuff either. It's all just available within the, the, the broader utility of trying to support the FACTA member to be successful. So that means then when you show up, you're not in the chemistry building thinking that you're not a chemist, you know, and that you need to be, you know, you're, you're in ISTB4, <laughs> you know, uh, and so it's, it's just, it's a, it's a much more fluid sort of environment.
0: And in that kind of fluid environment with all of the schools you've created that are transdisciplinary, obviously there's a lot of potential overlap. So how do you approach thinking about internal competition or, you know, the, the relationship among the different, different units? Are you basically and saying we're going to let We don't let...
1: care. We yeah. don't care. <laughs> you know, it's like we have, we have economics faculty members everywhere. We have them in economics in the business school. We have them inside engineering. We have a whole bunch of economists in the sustainability school. Uh, we've got uh, water people everywhere. We've got sociologists everywhere. We we don't even care. You know, it, it's 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 what we what we what we're after is as much diversity, as much intellectual diversity, and as much intellectual creativity as possible. So one advantage of scale. Remember when I was at Columbia, the chemistry department was seventeen faculty members, and it was probably seventeen faculty members in nineteen forty and it was 17 faculty members in 1991 when I got there. And it's probably 17 faculty members now. And so, so we might say, so in fact, we know right now we're gonna add 100 or 150 faculty members to engineering. We already have 350 faculty members in engineering. We're gonna add 150 faculty members in engineering. And so somebody will say, well, how many are for what? And we're like, I don't know, we don't care. <laughs> it's, 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 can you find smart people, agile people, transdisciplinary thinkers, creative people? So we've tried to break down the notion that everything is just simple replacement you know we lost the vietnamese specialist in the political
0: science department so we need a new vietnamese specialist i'm like well maybe (laughs) so so um one of the things that you noted was the pattern that in in most states there's a flagship public with a main campus and then there's a a set of branch campuses Mm. that don't really match it and you mentioned that with the urban campuses that often they weren't encouraged to do research in the yeah. way that the flagship public was. As you've added campuses to ASU along with the online, how have you sought to avoid that issue in thinking about the identity of the campuses?
1: Well, so one thing we worked really hard to do was to eliminate the notion of campus. So we have four physical locations in Metro Phoenix uh, that, when I got here, were called campuses, and they had their own provost and they had their own accreditations. I live to talk about eliminating all those provosts, their positions, and eliminating the, the other accreditation. We now have one accreditation. And we're considered one university. And the reason for that is, here's what was happening even here. Oh, well, you got to go to ASU Tempe. You must be better than the, than the kid that went to ASU West. So I know University of Washington has this with Bothell and Tacoma and Seattle. Yeah. So there's a social hierarchy. And so I said, there isn't gonna be any social hierarchy here. This has to be what we call, we came up with a phrase called one university in many places. And the purpose of one university in many places was avoid social hierarchy. So we have a College of Liberal Arts and Sciences on the Tempe campus. And we have another College of Liberal Arts and Sciences called the New College for Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences on the West Campus. And they have lots of the same kinds of faculty, even faculty appointed between different units uh and uh and so what we found then was that it was fantastic for our students to give them more flexibility of where they wanted to be or where they wanted to go or what courses they wanted to take and then it became fantastically creatively uh empowering for our faculty well i'd really like i don't really want to be with these you know these these people that think this way in this unit on the tempe campus so i'm going to go over to the west campus i'm going to join that unit over there so so we we created a single university so so it's kind of funny uh we have uh I think I'm pretty sure of this, we have more students and more graduates than the University of Missouri system, but we don't have campuses like the University of Missouri system. So that means we have campuses, but we don't call them campuses. And there's there's only one administration for the institution with 150,000 students, 150,000 degree-seeking students with one administration. Some of the colleges operate on all the campuses. Some of the colleges operate on one of the campuses, whatever they want, whatever they need. And so and so that's the way we operate.
0: Um. I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, there's so much appeal of the model you've defined for a policymaker or for students in terms of the, the public good it's creating. And yet, if I read the numbers right, since you published Designing the New American University and, and formed the University Innovation Alliance, there really hasn't been a growth in the number of public universities following this approach. There There, there are 10 members there now. And and so why isn't it that you're seeing more, not necessarily exactly like ASU, but taking up this this mantle?
1: Well, in book number one, the designing the new American University, we we found a fancy word called filiopietism, which is this uh, notion of fidelity to piety or adoration of tradition. And so that's a factor. Uh, And so the other thing that we found is that is that you know so for so for instance, we have the entire freshman curriculum online available at scale for free to any user anywhere including adaptive learning platforms that will allow you to master calculus by tutoring you all the way back to the third grade built in and no cost other universities won't use it it's, it's, it's a weird thing about our sector it's kind of like middle ages like it's 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 kind of like you know back when the burgundians and and the english and the french which france was just another tribe at that time uh uh we're all battling, and then you know Jean d'Arc Joan of Arc had to come in and you know you know move it and what I mean is that it's all just competitive battling between all of these entities and and uh it's it's very hard to stimulate innovation now having said that the the output of the university innovation alliance, which was always meant to be ten or twelve, it was not meant to then ultimately grow you know we have seen huge increases in the production of uh, Pell eligible graduates from all of those schools. Uh, we've seen uh, all kinds of innovations that we've been exchanging with each other. But as to why, to your question, uh, you know, uh, David, more broadly, why don't we see more of this? You know, it is, we're in a weird, weird, weird sector. I mean, I it, institutions would rather be dead than cooperate with another institution. Uh, and uh, I don't know why. It's just, I don't understand it.
0: Can can you, My my sense is that a lot of the other publics that have Really gone for expansion. You mentioned in the fifth wave, Penn State, University of Maryland, Purdue. Yeah. The, it seems to me the difference between their approach and yours is they've built other units the, yeah. through the online that, right. that really do this, but that those operate quite distinctly from, you know, the way in which the, the traditional on-campus and, and my sense is for ASU that it's much more. To to your sort of design criteria, it's much more in the DNA of everything you're doing to to have this approach. Is that That, a fair characterization?
1: That is a a difference. So so what's called Maryland Global, Penn State Global, and Purdue Global are largely other – so Purdue Global was a for-profit online university that was purchased. Yeah, Kaplan. And uh, University of Arizona just did this uh, also with uh, the acquisition of an entity. So in our case, we are a very, a very uh, uh, faculty driven thing. And so all of our courses online or on campus are all from the same faculty. And so we're very, very excited about that. And so that is a difference. Uh, there doesn't have to be one way to do these things. There isn't one way to scale. Uh, we think that uh, that works best for us because it's allowed us to modify our culture. Uh, and it's allowed our faculty to embrace technology enhanced uh, online learning and to become unbelievably creative. So we have the first online fully accredited undergraduate engineering degrees. We have 20,000 online STEM majors, for instance. We've got unbelievable growth in philosophy and English and history online degrees, a digital photography degree that out of, our, out of our art school that just knocks your socks off. I mean, it is unbelievable fun to see what our earth and space exploration faculty can do with an online astronomy degree when most of them are running uh, off Earth missions, uh, and 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 they love it, and and so what we've done is we've created a thing that we that I I sometimes call super faculty. We've created super faculty who can operate with on campus students, on campus graduate students, uh, uh, do their research or their scholarship, do stuff online, and then also you know we think eventually then also have uh, what we call ASU Sync, S Y C N. And that's using, you know, these kinds of technologies like we're using now to uh, expand our our teaching footprint.
0: So right now we're in a moment where with the Biden administration's proposals, there's some pretty radical ideas for thinking about the funding of higher ed. If they came to you and said, you know, we really think that what we need for America is more ASU-like approaches that integrate world-class research with with education. Are, are there any policy levers you see that, that might encourage more institutions to, to do what ASU has done?
1: So one would be, uh, you know, it's kind of funny, we run this huge, you know, trillion-dollar educational enterprise across the country, at least that. It's probably more than that. Uh, yet we do very little research. and And, and the government spends you know, billions and billions of dollars just on Pell Grants. And then and then they they facilitate loans, which is a profit center for the government. I mean, they're not really losing money, but, but, you know, they're spending billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars over time, and they don't do any research. And so one thing that they should do is they should fund and accelerate innovation with scaling expectations at those universities that could get that done, number one. Number two, uh, I think that there are some policy changes that could be made by concentrating resources on institutions that are actually interested in high quality graduates, which do very well in the market, as opposed to just churning through dollars to have people in school that then ultimately don't graduate. Or if they do graduate, they don't have any value in the marketplace. And so there's a number of policy changes that Washington folks could put in place. I'll also say that you know I, I'm not a big fan of the concept of the word free. Uh, uh, I love this concept of scholarship, I, lo- I love the concept of grant. I don't like the concept of free uh, because it, 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 what will happen is that if all of a sudden we have free public community colleges or free public colleges, then there's going to be the free colleges, which are will be perceived uh, by many to not be any good. And then there's all the colleges that you have to pay to go to, largely private, that then will be the good ones. And so we will then have created a permanent class divide of significant uh outcome and there's a good example of of this right now in a place called france uh where you have two types of colleges those that some people go to that are free and those that people have to pay to go to and you know they're considered not even on the same planet in terms of their quality and that's a very 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 bad outcome
0: yeah i i couldn't agree with you more i wrote an op-ed arguing why free was not the way to go and that what the UK or Australian model of making sure that people could get the funding they need, regardless of income, to be able to go, but that the people who benefit ought to then pay it back, would offer a, a much better model for scaling it and doubling Pell, and letting students choose could be, you know, uh, an approach that would really target the resources where they're needed.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm more I'm more with you, and and I just think that we have to be really careful about. You know we have we have a free system right now called public schools, which is, in my view, grossly underperforming. Still producing a million high school dropouts a year, uh, not producing people that are really educated at the twenty first century level that's needed. And there's this whole thing of this concept of you know no financial accountability, no responsibility, completely bureaucratized, and we and we need new models in all of these public education spaces.
0: I wanted to ask you about a couple areas where Small Chatham University and ASU have uh, have some things in common. So you created the first ever school for sustainability. We we created the first one east of the Mississippi and with a campus devoted to a, a model of living learning sustainability. Can you say what was it that led you early in your tenure there to to create a school for sustainability a, as a focus, you know, in, in those in those early
1: years? Well, for me, you know, I it's kind of funny. I think history is going to look back at academia and say, you all have done really tremendous things, tremendous things. But let me talk to you about your screw ups. And one of your screw ups, academia, is that you didn't focus on this relationship between humans and the natural systems that support you. So you allowed the chemists to produce all these terrible c- chemicals. You allowed the engineers to decide that we're going to burn black coal until it pollutes the atmosphere and oil. We're going to burn these animals alive and create all this carbon. And somehow the none of these people could talk to each other and the engineers were doing one thing and somebody else was doing another thing. And then you had very limited economic models. And so you, you basically screwed us. Uh, And, and so uh, to me, the driving sense that I thought needed to be addressed was the actual design of the universities, not having outcomes as an objective. And this is a debatable thing. I've had many arguments. And so we started the school of sustainability to be an outcome science. The outcome was a sustainable relationship through a fundamental understanding about, humans and our relationship with the natural systems on which we're dependent, and then understanding both humans and the natural systems in ways where we could build then sustainable outcomes. And so it is hugely unfortunate that that we, we didn't do that, and we're doing it awfully late. And so one of my principal objectives at, at ASU has been to build an institution capable of anticipating what it is that we needed to know to be able to be more successful environmentally or socially or economically uh, going forward. And universities have just typically not done that because we're overwhelmed by what I call the hero model. Well, look at the molecule that I found that I won the Nobel prize for that will then change all human outcomes. Well, it turns out it won't change all human outcomes. It's insufficient. It's necessary, important, and should be recognized, but insufficient. And so it is hugely, hugely a disaster in some ways that Universities are all doing the same thing. So if there's a spectrum of knowledge that we're focused on, it's a tiny fraction of what we could be or should be focused on. And sustainability and a focus on sustainability was a way to expand that spectrum.
0: Another area that I think a lot of universities have ignored, but where you made a huge investment was with Mirabella and focusing yeah. on building a, a, a high-end uh, community for those over 55 um, that was you know really focused on lifelong learning. Can you say the genesis of that? What's been the profile of the people there and 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 what led the university to to focus there?
1: So one of the things that we're incrementally doing is we're expanding our concept of who is a learner, who is a universal learner and the process over a person's life of universal learning. And so Mirabella is one of 15 things that we're doing and it just happens to be focused on bringing people back to campus to live on campus in, you know, senior living facilities where they become a part of mentoring students and engaging on campus and then uh, engaging in our living and learning environment and so forth. So we built a, I don't know how many units are in it, 400 or something like that. I can see it outside of my window here to the right. Uh, uh, And uh, it's our first of what we hope will be mini facilities, bringing in a few hundred people per facility and bringing them into a, a life experience for them. Once they're ready to move into a senior living facility where they get everything they need to transit the rest of their life, but they get to do it on campus with us as a part of what we're doing. And so we just see that as one of the important things that we're doing in the in the whole notion of advancing learning and learning outcomes.
0: And the, the profile of that in terms of, you know, it's, it's a pretty expensive facility to enter. It seems different from the access focus you have for the more traditional age students. Is that something you see over time evolving to broaden or?
1: Yeah, well, I I think we do have to find this first one was, you know, set up on whatever financial model the third party could do. And, and it it is, it is, it is uh, not a working class uh, outcome or a, a lower middle class outcome. It's a middle class, upper middle class, upper class outcome. So, yes, uh, we need to think about that. Uh, why should only, you know, and so that goes to the, the size of the apartments, the, you know, that kind of thing. You could build other types of facilities, which we will over time. Uh, and uh, and so uh, this is this is where we started.
0: And, and why, given the size of the baby boom generation, the income they have and the fact that they have the time for learning, why do you think many other universities haven't haven't focused on that?
1: You know, I think other universities, I don't know why they spend a lot of time talking and arguing and, and, and I, it's just like, okay, well, like, what are you going to do? I mean, and so, and so we just decided just to do stuff and, uh, and uh, help to facilitate it happening and, and, and hope that most of it works.
0: So, so as you think about the things you've been able to do in your career, what, what are the prior experiences you think that most enabled you to be successful? as a, as a transformative leader in hiring?
1: Well, I mean, I think talking to lots of different kinds of people being, you know, moving around, but also learning to understand that, uh, uh you know, every human being has massive potential. I mean, it's unbelievable. People think that people think that there, I mean, are there geniuses? The answer is yes, but not, we, we don't recognize as many as there are, and we don't empower as many as there could be, you know, genius doesn't have to be a a rare thing it has to be a thing that's highly spread out in terms of topical geniuses there could be thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands hundreds of thousands millions of topical geniuses people that figured things out people that made things happen and so for me i think the most important thing for me in my life experience was seeing this and seeing the potential of of humans and so was there it wasn't one day or one event but it was just being able to just just look at this unbelievable potential that human beings, individual human beings and groups of human beings have, and uh, finding a way to to bring that all together. And so, so uh, I think working in transdisciplinary environments helped me for that. When I was a junior in college, I was a university year for action volunteer in, in Vista, volunteers in service to America. I took 60 hours of independent study my junior year and then traveled all over the country working on projects as parts of teams. I mean, it's just like unbelievable. And so I just think that a lot of people's experiences are too narrow and they come in with too many, you know, like somebody comes in at 17 and says, well, I want to be an accountant. I'm like, okay, but let's make sure you learn something else than what you thought you needed to know when you were 17. So, so this notion of, uh, you know, my three kids, I said, I'll pay for you to go to college under one condition. You got a double major, no matter what. I won't, if you want to go, I'll pay double major. They all double majored. One majored in biology and anthropology, one majored in history and Chinese, and one majored in, majored in English and gender studies. And so uh, and then and then they all had minors, too. So double majors and minors. And so uh, I just think that that uh, one of the lessons along the way is broad education, science and humanities, uh, creative and, uh, 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 you know, uh, more uh, rigid you know all those things you know just trying to get as much exposure as possible and i think those have been the things that have been important for me
0: it, i i picked up pretty strongly from the from your work also the the stuff you you mentioned from the maxwell school the training as sort of an organizational yeah. theorist architect yeah. and the ability to think about how institutions shape behavior that seems to me like it's it's a really essential skill if you want to be someone that's trying to to do something bold within.
1: Well, so, so think about the U S so the U S is not, it's, you know, the design of the United States is, 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 uh, you know, not a disciplinary thing. It's a design. And so we had architects designing. And so it's funny, like, I happen to be of the belief that academic leadership should be, uh, designers. They should be designing outcomes. They should be designing knowledge trajectories. They should be designing new ways to, create the criminal justice system new ways to attack systemic racism these are all things that require design as much as they require argument or uh, awareness and so okay you you understand it now what are you going to do about it you know you want a new police department okay you know just 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 you know saying that it's bad okay i got that what are you going to do about it and and so and so this notion of design empowerment the maxwell school was definitively that way and i was uh, hugely empowered by that and then also using design logic and and looking at herbert simon's science of the art sciences of the artificial and design sciences and thinking about it and and and, and so much of us are just we're just trained to be you know bean counting man- managers as opposed to architectural thinkers i think that you're right uh, david that's an important uh, part of uh, what i was able to experience
0: so so a final question for you michael um you're coming up on two decades in this job. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a demanding one, as any college president will tell you. What have you done to, to stay fresh, to, to, to renew yourself? Because the energy, the innovation that's still obvious in, in, in the way you're answering the questions, um, you know, it's hard for me. I'm five years in imagining still having that 20 years is, is hugely impressive. How, how have you coped with it on a personal level?
1: Well, I mean, for me, it really has been. I mean, if you're if you're lucky enough to to be in the university sector for your life, you might as well have died and gone to heaven. So, so I, I've been in, I've been attending college or working out of college for uh, 48 years. So I think I have the equivalent now of like 24 bachelor's <laughs> degrees, and and so for me, you know, like what I'm working on now, what I'm reading now, what I'm focused on now, what I'm concentrating on now is just as exciting as when I was sitting in the freshman year uh, fall semester as a 17-year-old freshman, just as exciting for me. So the key for me is, is just this unbelievable uh, energy that comes from where we're going from learning. And so I just think that, that if once you turn yourself into administrator, you're done. I mean, you're, you're finished. You, you, you have to stay as a student, scholar, teacher. Uh, in all these things, and then and then work with others that are trying to do that also, and so that that's really been the key for me. So,
0: that's wonderful, Michael. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know how demanding your schedule is, so it's been really great to have a chance to speak with you today.
1: Well, nice to see you. I appreciate it. Uh, anytime you need anything, just let me know.